John's gospel primarily focuses in on Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. Okay, that's really where, where John's going to be kind of focusing on the activity and the ministry that's going on there in and around Jerusalem. And the other gospels, over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what they do is they really kind of focus in on Jesus's ministry taking place in the Galilee region. Okay, he kind of made his headquarters there in Capernaum on the uh, uh, north side of the Lake of Galilee, and so a lot of the ministry of Jesus took place around there. And so the other gospels really key in on that whole area and use that kind of as the focus, the backdrop of Jesus's ministry. And so last week we saw Jesus's ministry beginning and starting with that first of the seven signs that John is is dealing with in the gospel of John. The first sign was the healing, or sorry, the, the water being turned to wine there in Cana of Galilee. Now Cana, again, is up in the north side there uh, of Galilee. And so there's where Jesus was at the beginning of chapter 2 with his disciples doing this incredible miracle, turning water to wine, an incredible display of his power, changing the physical elements of water and bringing about a transformation. And we, we talked about how, you know, that's really what Jesus is all about. Not just transforming water to wine, but transforming lives from darkness into light, from sin into life. And so this greater work of Jesus bringing transformation to people lives. And we saw also on that miracle how it was really also kind of that picture of laying aside the things of the law, the the weaker things of the law for the greater things that Jesus was bringing in, laying aside the inferior for the superior. We remember that he took those those pots that were used for ceremonial washing and he had them filled up with water but then turned them to wine a transformation from within you see and so that was the picture that we saw and as we finish up this chapter now today we see the focus now shifting from Cana going down to Jerusalem there in the south. Like I said, John's gospel really focuses in on the ministry going on in Jerusalem. And we're going to see now how the law was indeed inferior because it was not affecting the hearts of people. All right. They had all the externals that they needed to, to do and follow. But what we're going to see as John focuses in on the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem is that there was a lot of stuff going on that was corrupt and wrong. And people's hearts were far from God. They could feel like they were religious because they're putting on the outward works of the law. But inwardly, there was not any transformation taking place. And that's the greater work that Jesus desired to do. And so we're going to see in our text today, starting in verse 13, that again, there was great corruption taking place in the very place that it should have been the farthest from. All right, look at verse 13. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Interesting. So first of all, we're introduced, it's the time of Passover. Passover, a very important time for the, the life of the Jew and for all people coming into Jerusalem. And so it was required that all Jewish males come to Jerusalem that lived within a 15 mile radius, that they come to Jerusalem for three annual feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So Passover was a very important feast and festival that they were to come and observe, just as, as the Mosaic law had, had you know, put out there for them. And so here's what's interesting, is that though Jesus 
was one that was laying aside kind of the picture at the wedding in Cana. That picture of laying aside the, the former things, the weak things of the law. Jesus was a guy that didn't just abolish the law. He, he came to fulfill it. All right, he's observing the law. He's doing this because this is what you do as a Jew. He follows the law. In other words, we see that the law is not bad in and of itself. I think we've got to be very careful about that because we're going to see, you know, in Jesus' ministry, he came to, uh, to really kind of challenge things, but he's not contradicting the law. He's coming to show that you're not going to be good if you're just following the law on an outward level. Jesus wants to do something far greater inside and that's what a lot of people were just simply getting themselves caught up in they're thinking if i observe the law on an outward level then i'm going to be right with god that's the confrontation that jesus had with many people they thought they were religious and righteous because they observed the law and we too can get into that place where we think we can surround ourselves with a lot of religious activity which none of that is wrong in and of itself but when you begin to place a greater importance on those things, when you begin to think the externals provide a better standing with God, then you're missing it. Because that's not what God has called us to. He's not called us to a life of religion and, and external works. We don't improve upon the work that Jesus has done. He's done it all for us. Jesus came to fulfill the law so that now when our faith is placed in him, it's as though that's our righteousness. And it is. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our righteousness, and we've got to be careful in this, our righteousness doesn't come by going to church, reading your Bible. Those are good things to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't do it. Do it. But understand, we do those things because of what Jesus has done for us. Because we love him. We want to grow in him. We want to get to know him more. These things don't improve upon our standing with God. And if you're here thinking, well, I've hit my quota this month. I've gone to church like three times. Woo, boy. I can go and kind of slack off a little bit now over here and enjoy some sin. No, that's not the case. That's not what God is saying. You're saved by his grace through faith in him. You don't improve upon that. Your works don't add to that. We're saved by Jesus and we do these things we want to honor him because we love him because he loved us because of what he's done for us so we keep growing in jesus through these things so here's jesus he's fulfilling the passover he's coming but also again passover was a great remembrance of what god did for his people in delivering them out of egypt and so they were to take a lamb a lamb without blemish right going back to exodus here and that was to be sacrificed the blood of that lamb was put upon the doorpost and those that followed god's word in doing so would be spared from god's judgment there in egypt each family now is to come and sacrifice the lamb as a memorial every year at passover and again that was to commemorate the great deliverance of god for his people. That was a, a, a great work that he did in setting them free from slavery, from the bondage of slavery out of Egypt. But understand something, that it never set them free from sin. That's what Jesus came to do. So John's gospel is written to show us that Jesus is the son of God. He's our deliverer, our redeemer. He's the one that sets us free. And so John is going to be kind of focusing in on these three different Passovers that are going to be unfolding through the Gospel of John because Jesus came to 
be the fulfillment of that first. Remember what John the Baptist said in chapter one a couple times when he sees Jesus come along. He's like, hey, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John introduced Jesus. Because that was his very mission and purpose for coming to this world, to be that final sacrifice, the Passover lamb, that would indeed take away our sin. So these people are coming, and they're coming with sacrifices, but these sacrifices can only cover their sin, can never remove it. But Jesus now comes in on this Passover to do a work and really, again, to reveal who he is. So... The Passover becomes a big focus in John's gospel, three of them, which really gives us kind of that chronological uh, order and and kind of seeing the timeline of Jesus' ministry, which the other gospels don't give for us. All right, again, focusing on Galilee, but here John now records his timeline of Jesus' ministry that lasted for three years here and the three Passovers that he came to Jerusalem for. So as Jesus and his disciples, as they come to Jerusalem now for this Passover, they... They made their way to the temple, which would have been a, you know, the, the, the normal thing to do, right? It's a busy place there. The Passover's at hand. There's lots of activity going on. Now, most of what we see here is very normal, and it's a regular part, again, uh, a regular scene at the temple, especially on Passover, because crowds are coming from all around, all right? It's a big event. It's a big deal. So the population there in Jerusalem just began to swell during these feasts during Pentecost and, and Tabernacles and, and Passover, especially one of their greatest feasts that they'd celebrate again, that deliverance of God. So the crowds are, are growing and there's just a, a heightened kind of activity going on in the temple, but none of which we read there in these first couple of verses are, are abnormal or strange. It's all just a part of people coming in with sacrifices as they followed the Mosaic law uh, to atone for their sin. And as people traveled from great distances, they would come oftentimes you know either bringing a sacrifice on their own which they would have to get checked because these sacrifices couldn't have any defect or blemish so oftentimes they'd come to the temple and the priest would have to check it oftentimes the priest would be like yeah no that that sacrifice isn't going to cut it there's a little bit something weird with you know the hoof we're not going to accept that you got to buy one of ours one of our pre-approved sacrifices here, blessed by the priests themselves, right? And so they'd have to do that. But also, oftentimes, the people would come, and they'd be coming from, you know, faraway places, and it would be too difficult to bring their own sacrifices. And so they would come just ready to purchase a sacrifice there at the temple. Now, we see something interesting, because not only are there these people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, but there's money changers as well. What's up with money changers? Well, money changers were there because as people would come prepared to buy a sacrifice or thinking I may have to do that, oftentimes the the currency they were bringing wasn't accepted at the temple because the popular you know currency at the time was the Roman coin. Roman coin having a picture of Caesar on it, which the Jews would say, ah, that's blasphemous. We're not going to worship Caesar or have kind of a, a, a pagan symbol or something on the coin. Or people would come from different places with foreign currency. Again, people thought this coin is not going to be accepted here. We got to exchange this coin. We got to bring it into what was the temple shekel, the kosher coin, the coin that was accepted at the temple. But what these money changers were doing is that your money is not accepted here, but you can buy some of our kosher money and they would jack up you know the exchange rate they would they would charge an exorbitant amount to exchange this money 
It was becoming a corrupt practice, a, a corrupt business going on here. It was veiled in a religious, holy endeavor, but its end result ended up becoming every bit as sinful as that which they were trying to prevent. So, Jesus sees all this going on, and he's none too excited about it. Look at what we read there, verse 15. This is where it really gets good. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Hmm. Think about this scene here, okay? There's there's probably, as Jesus does this, there's, there's screaming animals running Amok. People are freaking out, right? The religious leaders would be fuming. People are probably jumping on the loose coins that are rolling around in the dirt. They're trying to grab some of it for themselves. I'm sure the scene became even more chaotic than it already was. No doubt about it. And it's interesting because this scene is is recorded in the other Gospels, but it's recorded at the end of Jesus' ministry. When he comes in after the triumphal entry, just before he goes to the cross there on, on Passover. And so it's recorded there. Some people have said, well, John is just putting this kind of in a, uh, outside of any kind of chronological order to just kind of show, you know, as he's coming to Jerusalem, this, this is the scene. But I, I think more so, this is a secondary event here, that these are two different events. In other words, it happened at the beginning of his ministry and it happened again at the end of his ministry. It shows that, again, all through Jesus' ministry, the hearts of these people weren't really changing. All that they had seen Jesus do, people still were more intent on serving themselves than they were on following Jesus. So now check this out here. It says that he made a whip of cords. Now I think that whip was probably more of a symbolic one than it was. I mean, it was an actual whip, but used more symbolically than it was actually used as a weapon because we kind of get the idea or the image of Jesus coming on a scene like Indiana Jones is just whipping out and woo, you know, and just starts to crack, whipping this thing, right? Starts just hitting people and people are trying to run and flee. He's like, woo, gets their ankles with it and pulls them and face planting, right? You kind of get that idea sometimes. At least that's the image I like to think of. I'm like, I like that. I like that, Jesus. That's pretty cool. You know, that would be fun to be, uh, to be there witnessing all that. But you see, I don't think that's exactly what's really going on because I don't think this is Jesus flying off the handle in a fit of rage. Because here the idea is that he kind of bends down and picks up some cords, some, some straps, and he just begins to fashion a whip of it. And he begins to very calmly... And, and calculated, go about clearing out these things that were not of God. This is Jesus simply making a statement of how these religious leaders began to use a holy and pure institution for their own personal gain. See, they weren't just abusing the people. They were making a mockery of the sacred things of God here at the temple. And I, I wonder how often... We mistakenly use the things that God is doing for our own selfish gain. You know, it's a sad thing when we see these things happening in the name of Christianity, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the church. And, and you don't have to look very far to see these things happening, right? You can turn on television and see some guy trying to peddle, you know, some, here's a, a veil of water that I personally bathed in. It is holy water. And you can have it for $20, you know. And this is going to, 
cure you, you from all sickness and disease. Or here's a handkerchief that I personally prayed over, and this can be yours for $10. It's going to bring prosperity and blessing. You know? and, and we see people abusing these things for their own personal gain. You've seen the silliness happening all around us, but you can be sure that this is the sort of thing that God is going to take care of and deal with. And I do not want to be on the receiving end of that. You can be sure of that. But like I said, we shouldn't think of Jesus as being someone that was reactive or that was allowing his temper to get the best of him here. Jesus showed his anger, but he did these things without sinning. And in fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. A lot of people like to mark their Bibles with that verse, but they cross out, you know, after those first two words. They're like, I'll circle those two. Be angry. I can do that. I can follow God's word quite well. And, and we, we look at this and we think, see, it's okay, but we miss that secondary part. Be angry and do not sin. And I like that because it reveals that there's an anger that is okay and that doesn't lead to sin. But I'm not sure how many of us can walk that fine line because it's a, it's a fine line to walk. But Jesus did. Jesus did thing, all things well, good, decently, and in order. He did not sin at any one time. And so here's Jesus in anger, but more so in this righteous kind of indignation. Like I said, for him to, to go and fashion a whip, make a whip out of these cords, that would have taken some time. He wasn't lashing out in a fury, but he was calm and calculated. You know, one of the few descriptions that Jesus gives of himself, besides those I am statements that are found in the Gospel of John, one of the few descriptions that Jesus gives of himself is found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. And here's what it says. Jesus himself saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. You see that? Jesus says, you want to know what I'm like? Here, I, I'm gentle. And I'm lowly in heart. That word gentle is the word meek. And we sometimes think meekness as being wimpy. Right? Just kind of being a pushover. As though Jesus comes in the temple and is like, Oh, man, guys, really? Do you have to do this? I don't think this is a good idea. Can't you just go somewhere? You know, this isn't Jesus. He's not wimpy. He's not a pushover. That idea of meekness is better rendered strength under control. Jesus was strong and he was powerful, but he was in control. And so he never sinned in any of this. He exercised a righteous indignation. Now, some of you might have a hard time even just hearing the words Jesus and anger in the same sentence. You think that seems kind of contradictory. I, don't, I can never picture Jesus as being angry. But at times, anger proves that love is authentic. Anger proves that love is authentic. Let me put it this way. If anybody ever tried doing something to my daughter in a harmful way, do you not think that I would respond to that? And there would be a lot of emotion that would be coming out of me. I would be angry because I'm desiring to protect her. I love her and I don't want anything to happen to her. And if anybody threatens that, I'm going to respond. And some of you might think, if I didn't respond, if I didn't do anything, if I just kind of like, oh, well, you know, you would think, do you really love her? It's in, that, it's in that anger sometimes that love is proven. 
And I would do the same thing for my boys, for my sons. Maybe not as intense. I have three. Then there's a little bit of wiggle room there. But um, I would still, you know. But you see, it, it, it reveals that love. Now, I want you to catch something here. As we talk about the love of Jesus, because all this sort of stuff was happening there in the court of the Gentiles. The temple had various places that some people could go to, other people couldn't go to. Here's a picture of, of Herod's temple here. And so we see the temple, the largest structure there. Only the priest could go in there. And that was divided into two Aries, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and not only one day of the year. But then you had the court of the woman just uh, outside here. And then the court of the Gentiles actually was on the other side of these walls that go all the way around. So the, court, the Gentiles couldn't even go inside the temple uh, compound and into the closer courts there. They were kind of on the outside. And so here's the Gentiles coming now. And most likely, all this activity that Jesus is overthrowing was happening on the outside of those walls because that's where the, the largest of the population would be able to gather and, and conduct business there. But you see, here's the place where the Gentiles are seeking to come in and do what? To worship God. To seek God. To have this encounter genuinely and personally with God. But what was happening is these people... We're getting in the way of that. They're creating all this chaos. As the Gentiles are coming in to just worship God. They've got sheep and lambs that are bearing. They've got oxen that are mooing. They've got people probably squabbling over the exchange rates at the money tables. It'd be like if you came in here on a Sunday to worship Jesus. And we're playing a big game of bingo. Be Third three or, you know, oh, 044, you know, we start yelling out all these numbers and you're just here to worship God. You're like, what's going on? I'm not here for bingo. That's on Tuesday nights, but that's not on Sunday. So, and so, do you not think this would make Jesus angry? Seeing people prevented from coming in and seeking God? He had a love for the people. His desire for them was to come and encounter God. And so this love for the people moved Jesus to respond in this way. And we need to ask ourselves, is there anything in our church life, a snobbishness, an exclusiveness, a lack of welcome, a tendency to make the congregation into a closed club or an arrogance which keeps the seeking stranger out. Let us remember the anger of Jesus against those who made it difficult and even impossible for the seeking stranger to make contact with God. May that not ever be said of this church here, that we're conducting ourselves in a way that's actually keeping people away from seeking God. And it's interesting because in, in verse 16 here, Jesus says, my father's house. He doesn't say to the people, hey, our father's house is not to be. No, he says, my father's house. This choice of words implies the men doing this are not children of God. 
If you come to worship God each week and all you think about is yourself, how you can profit from religion, what you like or dislike, what you want or don't want, and what bothers you or satisfies you, then you may not be a child of God. God's people are in awe of him. God's people worship him. Coming to God in faith requires turning from self-worship to true worship. If each Sunday is a narcissistic activity of self-worship, then you're, not, then you're walking in the footsteps of the temple merchants. Those aren't my words. Don't get mad at me. But there's some self-evaluation that needs to take place. Am I coming to church because of what I want it to be? Is it about me? Is it about satisfying my desires? Or is it about coming to say, God, I want you to be glorified. I want you to be exalted. I want all people to come freely to be able to experience you in a fresh and new way, God. And so Jesus reacts to this. And notice here in verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. See, they see what Jesus is doing, and, and I'm sure the disciples could have thought, oh man, Jesus, you better, let's bring it down a notch here. Is this okay? Is this all right for you to be done? Suddenly they're like, oh, wait a second. Remember what we, were, what we read back in Psalm 69, verse 9. They recall this verse that was speaking of King David who had a zeal for the house of the Lord. David wanted to build a house for God. He had a zeal for those things. Even though there was great opposition around him, David still pushed forward to see these things honoring God. And suddenly they realized, we have a greater than David here, Jesus our Messiah, who also has a zeal for the house of the Lord. In other words, they're going, this is what the word says. We're seeing Jesus fulfilling scripture right now. How cool that would have been. And in all things, how we need to be sure that we're lining up with Scripture. In the one event where people may have thought Jesus was being a little bit perhaps unchristlike, he still was lining up with Scripture. He fulfilled Scripture. Remember the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is being poured on the church and the crowds are sitting there wondering, what is this all about? What gives? This is strange. This is weird. What did Peter do? He said, hey guys, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter says, this is that. This is a fulfillment of that word, that prophecy. In other words, everything was simply lining up with God's word. Though it may have seemed weird or odd, it was fulfilling scripture. It was in the word. And we need to be sure that we are those that are lining up with God's word and all that we do. So, This scene here is revealing to us just really the commitment Jesus had to his father, a zeal for God and his business. And it also reveals that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah because he comes in with the authority to do these things. And this is where things go now because he's getting challenged on that. Look at verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. See, the Jews, speaking most likely of the religious authorities, perhaps it's kind of the upset merchants here at the time, but this collection of Jews who are really in opposition to Jesus, as we'll see throughout the book of John, they come to him and they ask for a sign to show his authority for doing these things. Notice they're not questioning what he did or why he did it. 
In other words, it's kind of like they know they're guilty. They know they're wrong. They're not saying, gee, wait a second. What are you doing? This isn't right. No, they're saying, uh, hold on. What authority do you have to do these things? They're not questioning why he did it. I think they know. It's as though they know they're guilty, but they're not arguing that. They're arguing about his authority. And they say, what sign do you show to us? Jesus, you know, is always trying to get cornered into appeasing the hearts of men. And they're not wanting to find out the truth. They're trying to deflect the, the issue off of their corruption and get it onto Jesus' jurisdiction. They're like, let's, wait a second. Who are you? How, do you? how are you able to do these things? They're not trying to deal with their issue. They're trying to make it an issue about Jesus' jurisdiction and authority. It's all a veil to try and stop the light from shining in so bright on their own sin. That's what a lot of people do today, isn't it? Instead of dealing with their own issue, they want to make excuses. They want to make questions. God, how could you do this? How could I believe in you if you allow that? What about this here? Instead of saying, Lord, I need need you. A lot of people try to deflect. Well, listen to how Jesus answered this another time. When others came and questioned that authority. In Matthew 12, verse 38 to 40. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus gives a bit of a cryptic response to them there in Matthew's Gospel, right? To show that there might be a sign that would be given to them, Aside from the sign of his death and burial, the ultimate sign given to show his power and control that not even death could hold him back, right? And he answers in a similar way here in John chapter 2, verse 19, when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I mean, Jesus is just... You know, way too smart for these guys. And I love our response because he would have responded answering the question, but they would have been left probably more puzzled than they ever were to begin with. They're all like, what is that all about? They're thinking probably Jesus took a little too much of that wine for himself from that wedding, you know, afterwards. They're all like, this doesn't make sense. But Jesus knew they didn't need a sign. They just needed to have hearts that were open to the truth that was right in front of them. That's the way it is for us. I mean, God has presented himself in such an incredible way where people are still like doubting and wondering and, and again, like I said, deflecting. They're trying to have... And all you need to do is like just do a 360. Look all around you and see God's handiwork. God's fingerprints all around us. Your very life reveals the very beauty and glory of God. It's all around us. You open up his word and you begin to see just the wonders of God. It's there for us. But we need hearts that are ready to be open up to that truth that's already been exposed to us and not try to keep deflecting, passing it on. And so Jesus is doing that with these people here. Verse 20 says, Then the Jews said, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, these Jews weren't able to get themselves onto a spiritual level. All they were concerned about were material things. And so they start looking at this incredible structure of the temple in front of them. And they're thinking, wait a second. Destroy this temple in three days, build, you're going to build up again? Wait a second. And they're looking and going, 
This has taken us 46 years to get to this point, and the, the temple still wasn't built or finished, completed. See, what happened was when Solomon built the temple, you all know it got destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, and the Jews were led away into captivity in Babylon. Well, after 70 years, they were led back to Jerusalem, and under Zerubbabel, the temple was rebuilt. It was a shadow of what Solomon's temple was. People were kind of crying over you know the dedication i was like oh man this is so far from where we were before you know and and they're they're weeping and crying but then what happens is as herod comes onto the scene in order to kind of gain favor with the jews and sort of win them over he begins to undergo a huge renovation and expansion project of the temple started in 20 bc and so for 46 years now this expansion renovation has been going on this temple was was becoming just magnificent because Herod was all about building, right? And so they're all looking at this going, this has been 46 years in the making. How in the world can you say when this temple's destroyed, you're going to build it up in three days? That didn't make sense to them. But again, like we know, Jesus wasn't speaking of the temple. He was speaking of his body and more so about his own death and resurrection. Three days later. That would be the greatest sign of all. But even then, people with hard hearts chose not to believe him. Even after Jesus rose again, what did the, the Jews and the religious leaders do? They tried to cover it up. And don't let that get out. It's passed on a, a lie. Let's cover it up. Their hearts weren't open to the truth. Now, there's a couple things we have to take note of here. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, he's not necessarily saying, go ahead, do it, destroy it. He was actually saying, you are destroying this temple. You have turned this place into a mockery, into a sham. This is a place where people should be able to come and connect with God above all, but they made it a place of chaos, kept people out. God says, you're, you're already destroying this temple. And it'd be because of their own sin that that temple would eventually be destroyed once more in 70 AD by the Romans. Where today, the Jews still are without a temple. Secondly, Jesus was saying that he was going to come and provide for them what this temple could never do fully. He was going to be the connection for people to God. He would provide himself as the complete and final sacrifice, ushering people into a greater and more intimate relationship with God. You see, we're able to come now, not on the basis of a weak sacrifice, but we're able to come now through the righteousness of Christ. That's how we get to come and approach God now. Not in our own works and effort and a weak sacrifice. We come through Jesus Christ. Look at what Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We now have greater access to God than anyone ever before. But it's all through Jesus. And notice in Hebrews it says, we have boldness to enter the holiest. Like I said before, the temple divided into two different rooms. The holy place where the priest could go in, but then the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat behind the veil. Only the high priest could go in there only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. That's what Hebrews is speaking of, the holiest place 
We now have access where we don't come in trembling and fearfully saying, God, are you able to accept me? He says, you come in with boldness because you're coming in through Jesus Christ who has provided the way. He's become the sacrifice to atone and not just cover our sin, but to remove our sin. And he's ushered us in now to a better relationship with God. Hallelujah. How good is that? This is what's happening here. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now I find it interesting that not only did the Jews not get this, they missed it, but it seems his disciples didn't even understand what Jesus was implying here. Because notice, John adds a little bit of a, a, a footnote in a sense for us. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, he's taken us uh, ahead. When Jesus did rise again from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. See, every time Jesus ever brought up anything about going to Jerusalem and having to die, his disciples just kind of tuned him out. Oh, no, see, no, wait a second. You're the Messiah. You're our deliverer. You're our leader. In case you know or don't know, I mean, there's not too many leaders that have led well dead. We need you alive. They didn't comprehend what Jesus was saying or getting at. So they just kind of tuned it out. Anytime Jesus talked about suffering, they're like, come on. We know the story. That's not how it's going to go, Jesus. And they just tuned it out. They didn't believe or understand. And remember, when Jesus did die, their hearts were, their hearts were troubled. They're like hiding out in a locked room, huddled together. They're fearful. They don't know what's next. They never comprehended that what Jesus said was actually going to come true, that he would rise again. It didn't make sense to them at the time, but there came a time when they saw what Jesus had in mind all along, where everything came to make sense. You know, it may be that way for us at times too, where Jesus is laying out truths for us that we think, how, how can that be? That doesn't make sense. You know what he calls us to do? Simply trust him. Put your faith in him. When things aren't making sense, when you don't understand your situation, how we need to come in to say, God, I don't know how, but I need to trust you. Because I know there will come a day when I'll be able to look back and go, ah, oh, that's what you're doing. That's what you're up to. It makes perfect sense now. I know that there will be a day when you will be able to say that, when maybe you can't say it now, that these things are making sense. Trust in the Lord. Keep following him. Keep worshiping him because he will bring you to a place where he will reveal what he was doing all along to where you can say, ah, I understand now. That's how it was for his disciples after the resurrection. Now, as we've been going through this and we're going to wrap this up here. How are we doing? Okay. Oh, man. Okay. So listen, as we're going through this, I'm sure there's some of you maybe looking at this whole scene and scenario and wondering, well, hold on there, Pastor Brent. What about our church? Haven't we gone against the Lord with merchandise? And yeah, you know what? We have a bookstore out front. We have sold t-shirts. We've sold mugs. Yeah, we've done these things. Is Jesus ready to come in and overturn some tables in here? You might be thinking, now here's the issue. And this is where it always comes down to with the Lord. Where's your heart? What's your motive for what you do? It's not so much, is it wrong to have merchandise? The issue more so is, how are you trying to use that merchandise? 
Are you trying to rip people off? Are you trying to make a quick buck? Are you trying to have some kind of scam, some kind of Ponzi scheme here where you're trying to bulk the people, win out, and, and, and make some money for yourself? That's more so the issue, the motive. And we only make like, you know, $15 on every t-shirt sold. So we're not really trying to rip anybody off here. It's just cost of doing business. But it's about your heart, you see. And we too often look at the externals and we judge, not knowing the motives of people. And I say that just because of where we're going in this text and where we're going to end off with. Because we are quick as people, and I see it more and more happening today, where we're quick to make judgment calls on people, on ministries, on things that are happening without knowing and understanding what they're all about, the situation at hand, where their hearts are at. Only God knows that. And we need to let the Lord deal with those things. When there are things that are blatantly, obviously clear, then yeah, take a stand. But don't be quick to judge. Don't be quick to start flipping over tables when you don't know the hearts and the situation of people. But Jesus understands what's going on, not just on the outside, but more so, Importantly, on the inside, look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. By the way, just just so it's clear, like, you know, bookstore out there, that's just really to be a blessing to you guys, all right? We're just looking to provide resources that'll help you and hopefully get them at a very decent price for you, all right? So that's the heart there, just in case anybody's wondering, all right? Check the prices. If you don't like the prices, let us know. But here's the deal. All through Jesus' ministry, there were people that followed him because of the signs he did, right? But Jesus knew that they were fickle people, that, that they would be just as prone to leave him when the signs weren't there. And that in itself became that kind of self-worship by these people. It was about what can we get from Jesus that will help us? How can we benefit from Jesus? What can we gain from Jesus? So Jesus, it says, didn't commit himself to those who were self-serving because he knew their hearts. He knew what was in man. He knows. He knows what's in you. He knows why you do what you do. And that's more important than what you do. Why do you do what you do? God's more concerned about the heart than he is about the externals. If you're going to church simply because you think that's checking off the the religious checklist, well, God knows. God wants you to be here simply because you want to meet with Jesus and worship him. And when your heart is right, it begins to take care of the externals. Actions begin to follow, again, where your heart is at. You do what's right, and it'll display itself in what you do. But God's more concerned about the heart than he is with the outward appearance. And the amazing thing is that that even though Jesus knew the heart of people, he still was willing to come and die on a cross to forgive them of their sin, to bring them into right relationship with God. Jesus loves you so much. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close with a song here. 
And as they come and get set up, let me just go through a few of these application points for us here to just kind of tie this all in. And It's interesting how this chapter unfolds. John began with a miracle of conversion, changing water into wine. And then John shows Jesus with a work of cleansing, the cleansing of the temple. That's always how Jesus works in people. Conversion, then cleaning. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes people think, well, I would love to come to Jesus. I'd love to experience, but I got to get things right first. No, let the Lord take care of that. You just simply come. He does the work of conversion and then he will get to the cleaning part. You don't need to clean yourself up. You just come to Jesus as you are. He's willing to accept you. But maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a while and there's been things that have begun to kind of just sort of be added up, collected that is another Lord. What areas of your life need to be overturned and cleansed today? Allow the Lord to do that. Secondly, have we turned the Lord's house into a place of self-worship? Or have we cleared the way of self and stuff so God can be experienced more greatly, both by yourself and by others? What's in the way? Thirdly, are you experiencing the full life Jesus has secured for you by his death and resurrection? Because we have unlimited and free access to God and we're called to enjoy God. Here's what this account really reveals to us is that Jesus has removed every obstacle. That's what Jesus has come to do, to remove everything that has gotten in the way of us from coming and encountering God. Jesus wants to free you up from those things, clear the path so that you can know God and enjoy God. Praise the Lord for that. And so we're going to take some time and close with a song here. And let this be a time where you just kind of respond to God's word here today, where you allow the Lord to speak in your life and ask him, Lord, what are these things? Is there in me that maybe I need to get rid of? And maybe you're here today and you just want to just come and say, Lord, I just want to know you more. Thank you for your love for me. I just want to encounter you. Allow him just to come and fill your life here this morning and just enjoy God here today. So let's stand together. Let's sing. And let's just take this time to respond to his word today.